I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business. Coming up this week, another £40 billion is pumped into Britain's banks. We analyse a new bailout and the plans to break up Lloyds and RBS. Plus, British Airways' Christmas strike looms ever larger. Can the company cope with its latest disaster? And Mickey Mouse gets a 21st century makeover from Nintendo. We discuss the continuing evolution of Disney into a multimedia giant. This is The Business from The Guardian. Here in the pod today with Deborah Hargreaves, The Guardian's business editor, and Rod Schwartz, chief executive, clearly so, a social business investment exchange. Thanks to both of you for coming in. And Rod, we'll discuss the likely disruption to your Christmas holiday plans later on. But first, let's start this week with the news that the British banking sector is to receive another huge injection of bailout money. In exchange for almost £40 billion from the taxpayer, Lloyds and RBS are being forced to break themselves up, including selling 900 branches between them. RBS will also have to sell off its hugely profitable Churchill and Direct Line insurance businesses, while Lloyds is embarking on its biggest ever rights issue to raise more money from shareholders. Meanwhile, both banks will be subject to strict new guidelines over cash bonuses. Now, we've been joined for this section of the programme by our banking expert, Jill Trainer. Now, is this a bit of EU-sanctioned asset stripping, Jill? Definitely in the case of RBS. I mean, it's, it's clear that RBS is paying um, a price for needing £45 billion pounds worth of taxpayer money. With Lloyds, I would argue that, and I think they would probably admit this, that they're not really selling anything that they wouldn't have sold to achieve the cost cuts that they would want to make. Uh, this huge bank that was created last year un- under the guidance of Gordon Brown. So, but I think in the case of RBS, there's definitely a case of a lot of assets being sold. The difference that would make it from some sort of fire sale is that they've got four years to get it done, and that's the one huge concession that they, that RBS particularly is grateful to have received. And talk to me about choreography, because we really got two announcements in one today. One was about the, the grand vision for what British banking will look like five, ten years from now, and the other one was about the government just throwing a huge amount more money at at the banks. Did those two announcements need to come together or was the government trying to cover up a bit of bad news with some good news? They had to come together. The government, I think, deserves a huge amount of credit for managing to make it look as if it is trying to reshape Britain's banking system when, in fact, it's the EU that's reshaping Britain's banking system. But the reshaping of Britain's banking system comes hand in hand with the injection of new capital. So the reason that these 900 bank branches that you referred to are being sold off is because this is what the EU wants as the pound of flesh for the money that's being put into the banking system by the British taxpayer. And what did Lloyds and RBS make of their marching orders from Neely Crows? Well, Lloyds has made it pretty clear that it feels it's come out of this pretty much unscathed unscathed, Mm. and that it clearly would have paid a much bigger price, a much different price, if it had been forced to go into the government's asset protection scheme under which it was going to insure £260 billion worth of its assets and take about £16 million of taxpayer money. That deal has now been shelved because they found a, a different way to raise all this money. But the big loser is RBS is Stephen Hester. Yeah, and, and, and Stephen Hester, is, 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 is the, the chief executive of RBS, is, is, is making the point that he feels that in the last week he was had new concessions, new demands from the EU thrust upon him um, and that some of them have been painful. I mean, they're saying today that the businesses they're being asked to sell, to, to sell are about £1.1 billion worth of profit in 2008 and that it's not going to make, make his life any easier no, to he's, achieve his five-year business plan. He's been forced to sell off the, the, the steady profit-yielding bits of his business, the insurance part. Yeah. I mean, the thing about that insurance business is it's the bit that 
last year, Fred Goodwin, his predecessor, Sir Fred Goodwin, put up for sale as a fu- in, in a desperate attempt to raise money. I mean, it's, it's potentially a business that could raise a lot of money. And, and, and what they're talking about today is possibly doing a stock market flotation of that business separately, because it's a sort of completely standalone business that, in fact, RBS formed. RBS made the acquisitions to create that business in the first place. So an IPO of it could well be possible. How much do you think it's worth, Jill? No idea at all. How much do you think it'll fetch? No idea. I'm not being drawn down that path. OK. Deborah, you must... Chief executives have said that to me a lot today, so I've decided to embark upon that. Um, your, your job is to speculate. Their job is to resist. Yeah, just but make, you know, make it up, Jill. Make it up. <laughs> well, it depends Two on... Two billion pounds? Well, it depends <laughs> on when you float it. I mean, you know, the fact is Hester's got four years to get yeah. this divestment done, and if I were him, I'd wait until the stock market was at some peak whatever he could find and, and, and do it then. I mean, clearly it's at the moment, today. Stock well, market well, of course, is not going to help him, is it? Well, it's also going to be very difficult to, to do an IPO in the current environment where what people are trying to do is, 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 is do rights issues and cash calls in another way. So, Rod, you're shaking your head. You're unhappy. I'm not at all unhappy. I, I just think I probably disagree. I, I think, um, or with elements of this. I mean, to me, this just seems another stage of a really bad policy abysmally executed. I mean, the government just seems to make mistake after mistake what's after the, mistake. What's the mistake that you see Well, I, I can remember way back when they could have just let Lloyd's bail out uh, Northern Rock way in the beginning. And that would have actually, I mean, if you remember, you look, but your paper reported on it. Uh, they could have bought that. I mean, it just seems like yet again, they're doing the wrong thing at the so wrong what would time. Be the right I think thing to do? I don't really, I don't really see why at this stage with the, 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 the system actually looking reasonably stabilized, you can make a really good argument to people who are making sacrifices up and down the country that the government is going to take 30 billion pounds and put it into two pretty underperforming institutions. Yeah, well, look at, look at what shocking. else you could spend that money on. In our graphic in the paper, we, you could buy 1,500 schools for that amount of money. It's a hell of a lot of you money. You could do an we amazing thing. And I, and I think one other point, I really, uh, one thing that's just making me, uh, frankly, full of rage is this kind of uh, hurt feeling, this bruised feeling that Stephen Hester has. I mean, it puts everything completely out of proportion. His bank went broke and was bailed out by taxpayers' money. For him to feel bruised is just shocking. Paul it, Miners it, it, says today that RBS was probably the worst managed bank in the history of banking. Well, that's, a, that's an extremely bold claim. I think there are a lot who would compete Jill, with that. Jill, defend RBS. <laughs> I, I'm not here to defend RBS, but the one thing to say for Hester is that he was brought in to sort out the mess at, uh, at RBS rather than actually can be uh, involved with being created. It's not it. his fault. But, but, then, but why should they, for example, he says this will make it more difficult for him to be in the capital markets business. Why, where on earth was it written that RBS has to be in the capital markets business? In fact, they never should have been in that business in the first place. It cost them it an awful lot, lot of money. It makes a lot of money, though. They're making a lot right, of money. All right, all right. Okay, so Rod's, Rod's angry, but... but Deborah, you must be absolutely <laughs> delighted because at last the government's listened to you and has clamped down on bonuses. Aren't you happy? Aren't you happy now? Yeah, I do think this is a very good development, actually. I do think that they are going to have a very penal bonus um, bonus policy. So they're not going to be able to pay any cash bonuses to anyone earning more than £39,000. This year? This year. Um, the boards will have to defer their bonuses till 2012 and most of the bonuses will be paid in shares. So, okay, it's not far enough, 
Rod, I see you. Uh, I mean, they own your head again, the lion's but, share of that but, company. Yeah. They have a right to ask for an awful lot more, and I think they need to ask for an awful lot more on behalf of us as taxpayers. But the other thing is, it does put them at a very big competitive disadvantage, as Stephen Hester has said today, in terms of um, Pete getting yeah, people this is, this is from other banks. Yeah, this is a mandate for Barclays to go yeah. out and poach all their top stuff. Yeah, but Paul <laughs> Miners has also called on the boards of other banks to take a strong line on bonuses, which. <laughs> Up till now, they have not done. Just just Uh, rewind the tape there. What you've just said, Paul Mines has called on the boards of the big banks to look at examples set by RBS and Lloyds and not not pay big bonuses. Well, where is the compulsion in that? No, there is none. So the government should really, you know, it has to be more extensively drawn. It really should apply across the board to banks. But you're delighted at what's happened. They've been pussyfooting around this issue, as we know, for months. And as we we know, they could go a lot further. But it's a first step. But they're missing the public mood. I mean, the public well, mood yeah. wants action a lot faster mm-hmm. than the political leaders uh, are, 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 t- are undertaking this action. And with an election pending, I don't even understand why they're pussyfooting around. I think there's a chance to take a much stronger view, and I think they should. Jill, what do you make of the bonus rule? Um, I, th- I think that in reality, the, the fact that they're not allowed to pay cash bonuses to anybody who's earning more than £39,000 a year is probably very sensible because it means that all those people who work in the retail branches of the banks who are earning an average of, I think the figure's 18 grand or something, Mm. they get two grand a year and they've relied on this 10% profit share for most of their careers, Mm. are going to get it. And it will hurt the investment bankers. Mm. It hurts RBS much more than Lloyd's, I think, from what I can make out. I mean, you know, the fact is, you talk about the fact that pressure hasn't worked from government before. If you recall when the government first demanded that RBS and Lloyds didn't pay cash bonuses to its directors last year. Barclays, it wasn't long before Barclays followed. It wasn't long before HSBC made sure that none of its directors received bonuses, or at least not the ones in the UK. So the moral pressure thing may yet work. The reality is it feels as if the mood in the city, while everybody wants to get bonuses again and wants to get things back to normal, it does seem apparent that at least the people in board level at banks, maybe they do realise that the mood is, is shifting rapidly against but them. But this is short term. This isn't yet anything like a fundamental restructure of the banking system or of the compensation system. And that really hasn't even begun yet. Yeah, it's was, impossible. I, I, I was talking to a big investor recently, in a big city investor who was saying, well, of course, if you have a base salary of only £200,000 and you're used to funding a lifestyle that costs you £350,000 and you don't get your bonus, well, what are you going to do? I could not believe that someone would make that sort of statement in this climate. I and mean, who has a lifestyle that costs £350,000? In a government-insured industry. <laughs> OK, let's wrap that up there. Jill, thank you very much for coming to the studio. Thank you for having me. You can read more comment and analysis of the new banking bailout at guardian.co.uk slash business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. And in keeping with the business's one-in-one-out policy, Jill Trainer goes, but we're joined by media business correspondent Katie Allen. And from the banks to the skies, the likelihood of strike action by British Airways cabin crew over Christmas has increased. A similar strike was averted in 2007, but BA still paid a heavy price cancelling a number of flights and transferring or refunding thousands of angry passengers. It's, of course, a very different financial climate these days. Deborah, just how damaging would a strike be to the world's favourite airline? Or oh, formerly favourite airline. Terribly damaging at a very busy time of year. Don't forget BA made a huge loss last year of £400 million and is online to make another loss again this year. So I think it would be a terribly damaging mood. I mean, it's very difficult to um, 
to see um, where the merit is in this dispute. We've got the um, BA um, staff saying we're not troublemakers, we don't want to push the airline into bankruptcy, we're just trying to protect our jobs, we're middle class people trying to keep a decent sort of lifestyle. And at the same time, you've got an airline that is barely coping and about to um, announce its second loss in two years. But don't forget, you've also got some very highly paid board members. Willie Walsh, I don't, you know, what what was he paid last year? A million pounds? And, and it, again, it is this sort of hypocrisy of um, stringent cost cutting for the workforce and um, a high pay for the board. Katie, how close are BA to the brink, do you think? Well, we, as Deborah just mentioned, they've had some pretty awful results. And I think um, Willie Walsh has said that they're very close to the brink. I can't remember the exact words he used and... Um, he said they're sort of slightly out of the woods but not quite um and i do think this kind of strike you've got to think about the timing as well christmas uh, you know time when people travel a lot people are going to budget airlines from ba anyway people can't afford to to fly at ba's prices um there's plenty of competitors out there if this happens or even if it doesn't happen anybody sitting there right now thinking about booking their christmas holiday will start to go on ryanair and easyjet's websites rod you're nodding Strongly. Yeah. Well, I, I've already considered it for an Easter holiday next year. I decided that BA looks to be a firm that has perennially got trouble, got trouble with its staff. It had trouble with Terminal 5. It just feels a troubled airline. It feels like it's not bringing along um, its staff with it at a critical time. I, mean, I don't see any other airline or other airlines having these same issues. So it's really making me averse to fly. The last thing I want as a passenger is to be flying when the employees are really angry at the management. That doesn't make me feel comfortable at all. Okay, Deborah, so you've got crap management, you've got prospect of Christmas strikes, and you've got new competition. Does this remind you of another strike going on closer to home? Could that be the post office? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Yes. Are we heading for another winter of discontent? Although you do have to remember in the last winter of discontent, it was virtually the whole country was on strike and we weren't having people buried and there was rubbish not being collected in the streets. I think, you know, a few sort of middle class flights and a bit of post not being delivered is not quite on the same scale. So maybe we're not quite at that stage yet. But I do think the postal workers do seem to be as far apart as they ever were. And it's quite hard to see how that strike can compare be resolved um, and at the same time that business is also losing a lot of um, a, a lot to competitors and I wonder if there's a deeper parallel I mean I wonder if this is partly a problem of incumbency BA was the the, the nationalized airline at one point uh, Royal Mail is still kind of a, the, a quasi-national postal postal service company um, and that when you have uh, an incumbent company suddenly facing new competition and a changed market that you always have this kind of turbulence. Well that's true you do have obviously as a competitor as a rival coming in um, you've got far lower overheads and um, a far lower cost base I mean you sort of have to look at our own industry for a start where we compete with web-based businesses our overheads are much bigger and it's much more difficult to make a profit it's the same with with any new business i think royal mail has the problem um which doesn't apply in the same way to ba in that it has to maintain this universal service so it has to deliver to every address in the country whether it wants to or not it can't just pick and choose the way the competitors can and i think that's a problem for it i think there's another problem which is one of fairness so one of the issues we, we spoke about on the, the, the first topic as well is a growing sense of injustice or unfairness. And I think that, while I wouldn't want to predict it will lead to another winter of discontent, I imagine we'll see a lot more industrial strife over the next year. 
with me. Mishka, Muska, Mickey Mouse! Now, just how elegantly we've managed to steer from the banking bailout to Mickey Mouse is for you, dear listener, to decide. Nevertheless, we'll finish this week by talking about the world's most famous rodent who's poised to make his debut on Nintendo's Wii Games console. Katie, Mickey's old enough now to claim for his winter heating allowance. Is he really a modern mouse for modern times? Mickey is indeed a modern mouse for modern times. He's been made over by Disney um, to star in a computer game called Epic Mickey next year. And um, the new Mickey sort of mirrors one of the celebrities you might see splashed across the front pages of the tabloids, the sort of person that's risen to fame, eclipsed family and friends, forgotten about them for years. Um, This Mickey is thrust into a world called Cartoon Wasteland, where he's confronted with characters like Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, um, created in 1927, Walt Disney's first ever character. Oswald resents Mickey hugely for eclipsing him, for for taking away all the limelight, all the money, um, all the all the perks of fame. And Mickey sort of confronts this world where there are problems of his own making and has to save it. So it, it, it's not quite aimed at small children. It's a Nintendo Wii game, so it's supposed to... Like, Sounds a bit heavy for a there. computer game. It, it seems very heavy. They've, they've got a guy in called Warren Spector, who's a real legend in the, in the gaming world. Um, and Warren Spector's company was bought um, by Disney about a year ago, I think. And... Um, he sort of was given this idea of modern Mickey in turmoil, character in turmoil, that came out of a Disney internal think tank of young interns. Um, and he's developed Mickey in turmoil and put him into cartoon wasteland. But rather than reinventing Mickey Mouse in a sort of David Bowie fashion, why don't they ditch him and big up Hannah Montana? They do big up Hannah Montana, as I think any parent of any teenager or younger would tell you. What they're doing with Mickey is that they're putting him into um, the section of Disney called Disney Interactive Studios. That's its computer games arm and video games market has been relatively stable compared to other parts of the media industry. Um, It has its own problems with piracy, but many would argue not as great as in the music world. Haven't been the same problems as in DVD distribution where Disney has taken a hit um, in the last year or so. So video games is getting a lot of investment from Disney and and the head of video games sort of said he came in, he saw Mickey Mouse, great character, known the world over, but people think of him as an icon on a watch or a poster. And they thought, let's turn him into this great adventurer that can appeal to lots of ages, um, do weird things with him in this dark world and, and make him the lead character in this game. What do you reckon, Deborah? Well, so is Mickey then intended to <coughs> subvert computer games in the way that Disney has taken over our children's fairy tales and reinterpreted them in their own image? Well, this is the difference with a computer game. Is um, For Disney, it sort of takes them to an interesting place, they, they would argue, because in a computer game, you get to determine what the character does. So, I mean, in the official press release, they say the game is all about actions and consequences. So Mickey goes through this world with a paintbrush and he can paint things and make them brighter or he can paint thinner onto them and make them disappear ever further and boost his own th- fame. So, you know, your, your sort of 12-year-old playing this game has to think about actions and leaving friends behind. And, Would your and, kids go for this? 
My kids are too old for Mickey Mouse. Although they all did go to Disneyland earlier this year with my parents. I wouldn't go because I don't like it. But um, You don't like Disneyland or Disney or what? Oh, God, I don't like any of it. No, it's all too commercial for me. I think Disney is an absolutely phenomenal marketing operation. Absolutely phenomenal. They're a vicious competitor and they, they're taking over the world. Deborah's touched on a really interesting topic because a, uh, a lobby group in Boston uh, called um, the Campaign for Ch- Commercial Free Childhood recently took on Disney, or they have been for years, on this um, segment of the business called Baby Einstein. And they've complained that the DVDs that they sell will not turn your child into Einstein. And as part of this, Disney is now offering refunds to anybody in America who's bought uh, Baby Einstein DVD in the last five years. So, <laughs> thinking you know, that De- Deborah's not, not alone. Einstein. There is there is a strong lobby in the US <laughs> called the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood and other groups that that you know are strongly opposed to our kids just growing up with commercialised characters and, and a whole empire of consumer products that come with them. Rod, you're either American or you're proof that Dick Van Dyke wasn't off when he was impersonating a <laughs> London. So <laughs> what do you make of what Katie's done, Katie's description, what they've done to, to Mickey Mouse? I think it's really fascinating. I think that... Are you horrified? Taken, taken a I'm not horrified at all. I mean, I think, you know, our, our children's lives are thoroughly commercialised and I think that... This is, you know, objecting to this is a, a small action against a, a tidal wave. So I think, in that sense, it's irrelevant. I mean, yeah, I, but, Rod, you ho- could say you're 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 banking your objection to the banking bailout is the same. No, it's just not a bit, not a fair, not an unfair point. I, I accept that. But I guess my view of this is that this is really interesting. They're taking an eighty-year-old piece of intellectual property and trying to revive it in what I think is a really interesting way. I don't know that it will make a good video game. I think that's going to be challenging. But I think the concept behind it, to me, sounds really fascinating. I mean, I should, I should declare an interest. I mean, I'm one of those people that, you know, when I, on an intellectual level, I hear this stuff and I sneer from the sidelines thinking, oh, God, you know, all that. And again, I go to Disney World and I just think it's the best thing ever. So I'm one of those people that easily buys into this stuff uh, as much as my brain tells me I shouldn't. You're like my parents. They love Disney. I'm sorry. Katie, final question to you. You're a hugely cerebral reporter, if you don't mind me saying. How do you feel when someone rings you up and says, well, we might have this story for you. It's about Mickey Mouse going really dark. Don't you just want to laugh and say, go away? You don't just have to look at things like Disney as, you know, let's report them on a quarterly basis when they have results. I think, you know, the business world can throw up some really interesting ideas and, and, and themes of how do you reinvent characters. And, and I think kids, you know, yes, their attention spans are split across lots of areas, but they do live in a completely different world to the people who discovered Mickey Mouse in the 1920s and 1930s. And it's very interesting when they reinvent mice like this, whether it's cynical or not. Um, I think the approach they're taking is really interesting. I mean, this, I think you should give them some, I, I think, and you have, uh, I mean, I think we all should give them some credit. I mean, they're actually raising some interesting questions about a character whose ego went out of control and feels a bit guilty about it and is now trying to deal with that. I don't know if it'll make a great video game, but I think it's a really fascinating experiment and one that I'm looking forward to. Well, that is well and truly it for this week. My thanks to the panel, Deborah Hargreaves, Katie Allen and Rob Schwartz. You'll find links to all of our stories at guardian.co.uk slash the business. And while you're there, why don't you post a comment on the blog? Our producer's Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was The Business. (laughs) 